from the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, November 12th. Today, where the polls went wrong in the 2020 election and the next steps for a promising coronavirus vaccine. So describe for me what exactly were major polls predicting in the lead up to Election Day? So the public polling average had the national polling lead of Vice President Biden at eight eight to 10 points. Pretty dramatic and decisive win. Michael Shearer covers politics for The Post. And as it got closer to November 3rd, Michael, like most of the country, was seeing some really favorable numbers for Joe Biden. New NBC polling shows Biden nearly doubling his lead with a 14-point advantage over Trump. Our NBC Wall Street Journal poll has Biden ahead by 10. In the key swing states in the north. They've got a seven-point lead in the new poll for Biden in Michigan. Michigan. Eight in Wisconsin. Wisconsin. And then five, a little bit closer in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. They had leads of between five and, you know, 10 points, depending on what average you were looking at. And so going into the election, it was pretty clear, if you believe those polls, that it was going to be incredibly hard for President Trump to find a way to win, given the margin of errors that the polls said they had. And though the counting is still happening in a few places, I mean, I think that it's clear that the election was a lot closer than what these polls predicted. Yes, for the second time in four years, America woke up to polling predictions that just didn't come true. And there's a lot of shock both among the public and then depending on which campaign you talk to among the political class as well, because their expectations were defied by the final result. And once again, you know, we're looking at what is a scientific process that doesn't seem to be scientifically capturing what is happening in the country. So then the question that I think everyone has is what went wrong or why were these polls so different from what we saw actually play out in reality? So we don't know the answer to that yet, in part because we don't have the final vote count. So we don't know how wrong the polls were, although it's clear that there were big misses, and particularly in those northern states. It's also clear, to give credit to the pollsters, that a lot of the close states, you know, including even places like Florida and, and Georgia, ended up being pretty close. They're basically within the margin of error. The polls got them right. So it's not as if all polls were equally bad in all places. But there's going to be another round of introspection here. And the initial thought of the people I've talked to, both the pollsters and the consultants who were getting these polls and trying to figure them out, is that you had a repeat of some of the same sorts of problems that happened in 2016. The first and, and probably biggest one is that Current polling methods are just not very good at finding Donald Trump supporters. And exactly why that is, is not clear. It may be that they don't like answering polls, so they they hang up. It may be that the polls aren't finding them to answer their phone in the first place. It's also possible, and this was an issue last time, that President Trump closes really well, that polling averages poll over several weeks, but you know, this cycle 
President Trump really played his whole campaign for Election Day, and his opponent, Joe Biden, was really playing for a vote-by-mail count. You know, he wanted maximum support about two or three weeks before the election when people were putting their ballots in the mail, whereas President Trump wanted his maximum support to be on Election Day. And, and, and something like that may have happened. There may have been a shift in the final week. But I also think it's worth taking a step back and, like, asking this question of why polls exist and why they're so important politically. I think a lot of times when I look at polls, especially in the the weeks preceding the election, it just felt like these were sort of prognostications to cater to my lack of patience, Mm -hmm. where it was just very, you know, exciting to see some sense of like, what could the election look like? Where could be a toss-up and where couldn't be a toss-up? But I don't think that like me as a just a consumer of news is actually the real audience for these polls. Well, yeah, that's right. That's another shift that's happened. I mean, 10, 20, 30 years ago, most polls were consumed by political professionals. They were polls that were made for campaigns to inform how the candidates behaved, what they did. There weren't websites where you could go to to find polling averages. There weren't people out there promising the public what the outcome of the election would be. I mean, some media groups did do polls. Gallup would do a national head-to-head ballot, but it just didn't have the same place in our psyche as voters, as, as citizens, that, that we had an ability to know what the future was. And, and so I think that's raised a lot of expectations. And, and for campaigns who rely on these poll numbers, what is the cost when they are wrong? Well, so there are a lot of campaigns right now, and I've talked to a bunch of these pollsters, who argue that their polling has always been more right than the public polls. And so that the miss hmm. they had was not as bad as the one that was done by averaging together the media organization polls and the college and university polls. The Biden campaign for weeks before the election day was telling people, don't trust these public polls. The race is not this big a spread. The tight states are within the margin of error. We can lose them. We might not lose them. Now, I've also talked to campaigns, particularly down ballot races, where they were really shocked by the result. They thought, you know, Democrats thought going into this that they had a real shot of picking up seats and they had polls showing the Democratic candidate up, you know, eight or nine points, and they end up losing by almost as much. So it's certainly true that some of the political polls down ballot definitely missed. You know, the other place where there was a real polling miss is some of the outside groups. Mike Bloomberg sunk almost $120 million into the final couple months of this race, almost all of it in Florida, hmm. and then $15 million split between Ohio and Texas. Trump won Ohio and Texas handily and, and won Florida by three points. That wasn't a result their polling saw coming. And I think that speaks to that cost that campaigns have when the polling is wrong, when you are sinking money or time and attention in states that you're never going to win. Or I think specifically when it comes to Senate races, I think South Carolina is a great example of a state where a lot of people thought that Jamie Harrison had a really good chance to unseat Lindsey Graham. That race between incumbent Republican Senator Lindsey Graham and Democratic challenger Jamie Harrison And today, new polling shows a dead heat. Tons and tons of money were poured into that race by Democrats. This poll shows Jamie Harrison ahead by two points over Senator Lindsey Graham. And Harrison still lost by a lot. And so you wonder if that was the best use of money. Uh, That's absolutely true. Another example of that is the Susan Collins re-election race to become senator of Maine. A new poll out today shows Sarah Gideon leading Senator Susan Collins in the race for the U.S. Senate. All the public polls we had going into Election Day showed she was losing that race. Gideon ahead of Senator Susan Collins with 46.9 percent for Gideon, 
to 39.8% for Collins. She won it by almost double digits. I mean, she won that race comfortably. And her campaign was arguing throughout that public polls were wrong. And most of the media organizations weren't really taking them at their word. I mean, campaigns often spin poll results or produce bad polls just to spin the media news cycle. But the reality was... She was hurt throughout that cycle because it was harder for her to raise money. It was harder for her to convince, you know, Maine voters that she had the wind at her back, that there was a movement behind her. But clearly, clearly the public numbers were missing something. One other thing I I think we should talk about is that polling is an art not just of finding out the opinions of people you randomly select, but it's also an art of predicting who will turn out to vote. And that is one of the things that President Trump has really complicated. And I think in the final analysis, what we will find is the polls that were better at predicting the result were also the pollsters who were better at predicting who was going to vote on Election Day. Can you tell me more what you mean by that? Does that go beyond just asking a question during the poll, like, are you planning to vote or not? It does. So, you know, the the best example of a pollster who really was able to predict her electorate was Ann Seltzer, who's a famed pollster in Iowa. The final Iowa poll is out, and it shows good numbers for Iowa Republicans heading into Election Day. The Des Moines Register Mediacom Iowa polls considered perhaps the gold standard in polling in this state. I talked to her about why her poll of the Senate race there, which showed a comfortable Republican win uh, by the incumbent, Joni Ernst, was an outlier at the time, basically came true. She was off by, you know, a point or two. Republican Joni Ernst is leading Democrat Teresa Greenfield 46 to 42. Really what it comes down to is her ability to know the divisions in her state and and then weight the results of her poll based on those divisions. So whereas other pollsters would weight against something as simple as college education and whether someone went to college, and then if you have less college-educated voters than a census tract, you would then give the college-educated voters more weight. She didn't use education. She she tested for things like married or unmarried. She also split her poll into four congressional districts in Iowa to really be able to poll separately rural districts from urban districts. And it was really that nuanced understanding of her state and its population and the divisions within it that allowed her to accurately predict what the result of the election would be. And and it's a nuance that if you're an outside pollster, a national pollster, you come into the state for one-time poll and you don't really understand the dynamics of the state, you're not going to be able to pick up on on those sort of fine details. That's super interesting. I also want to return back to what you said about how hard it is for some of these polls to basically find Trump voters, that they just struggle to be able to fully capture that segment of the population. And I'm wondering if you can talk more about Trump voters, you know, something that seems as random as like getting a a phone call from a person who's asking to ask you some questions, like why that would become so much more difficult in terms of getting a Trump voter to respond to that than a non-Trump voter. I think the simplest answer to that question is that President Trump has spent five years telling his most diehard supporters that the media organizations and the polls they sponsor and the public polls coming from universities are the enemy, that they're um, out there to distort, to suppress the vote, to lie about his real support. And so if that is the message that you have consumed and you end up getting a call from a pollster, it would make sense that if you get a call from a pollster saying, I'm with Quinnipiac University, I'd like to ask you a few questions. If you're a real diehard Trump supporter, you may not want to participate in that. And so what that means is then the, the pollster goes to try and find somebody else 
of a similar demographic group to get an opinion from, and they end up finding that opinion from someone in your demographic group that is that is more favorable to Joe Biden and less favorable to Donald Trump. You know, the other thing to mention is we went through uh, another very large polling effort in the 2018 midterm elections, and those polls were largely right. And the big difference, the obvious difference between 2018 and 2020 is Donald Trump was not on the ballot in 2018. It was a different electorate who came out to vote. So it may be that the polling error is greater uh, when there is a particular type of candidate on the ballot, one who is able to bring out uh, voters who don't normally vote, is able to particularly appeal to white, non-college-educated voters, is one that basically brings a populist message that the institutions, including pollsters and the media, are corrupt and shouldn't be trusted. You know, when all those things are happening, that may mean you just have to assume a greater polling error. So then what is the future of polling? Like, it sounds like there are better questions that pollsters or the people interpreting those polls can be asking. But also, I wonder if we reached a point where polling as an institution maybe doesn't serve the country, voters, the campaigns as well as they have in the past, and that that is just the future. I think what a couple things will happen. I think, you know, the media is going to have to uh, look again at how they use polls and 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 how they elevate the sort of horse race numbers going forward and and whether that is appropriate. Because, you know, polling didn't miss in a lot of ways this cycle. I mean, we we learned a lot of the dynamics that ended up being true, you know, big suburban support for Democrats, you know, larger Hispanic support for Donald Trump. I mean, a lot of the things that polls were showing ended up being true and were really important to understand what was happening during the cycle were were very useful for the campaigns. It's that final number of what the vote is, the head-to-head poll number that that didn't prove very useful in in a number of these states. And I think that's something that that media organizations and I think the American public is just going to have to reconsider as they go forward. Democracy is not something that you can predict. That's sort of what makes it democracy. It's the decision of millions of people on a given day or over a several weeks, and all those people get to make up their own minds. And no amount of polling, no amount of advertising can determine what millions of people collectively decide. Those people are deciding for themselves. Michael Shear is a national political reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing about this week's huge development in the battle against the coronavirus. Very early Monday morning, Pfizer announced that they had early data from their vaccine trial that showed a pretty stunning result, a vaccine that appears to be more than 90% effective. I'm Carolyn Johnson, and I cover science at The Post. This trial, it started in late July. They're enrolling 44,000 people and half of them get the vaccine, half of them get a placebo. And what they were waiting for all this time is for people to get sick in the trial so that they could see whether fewer people are getting sick in the vaccine arm than those who got just kind of two shots of a saltwater solution. And... They had 94 cases so far of COVID-19 in their trial. And they didn't give the specific breakdown because this is an intermediate look. The trial's not done yet. 
but more than uh, 90% effectiveness means very few cases were occurring in those people who got the vaccine. That number, 90%, is huge. For months, scientists have been warning that initial vaccines might only be moderately effective, like 50 or 60%. So if these results bear out, Pfizer's vaccine could be a game changer. But there are still a lot of questions that need to be answered about the trial itself. Overall, about 42% of the participants in the study came from different high-risk groups. This will be one thing that regulators are definitely going to look at and see, is there enough representation from those groups that are at the highest risk for severe disease? I mean, that has been Black people, the Latino population, and also elderly people, people over age 65. These results are really hopeful and really good, but they also lack many specifics. And what's going to happen is that regulators are going to look at these results in a lot more detail than we've heard. We've heard just very top line hopeful information, but scientists who advise the FDA are going to really drill down into, did this vaccine perform better in some groups than others? What did it do to potentially decrease, you know, the contagiousness of people versus whether they got sick? Because if you have a vaccine that makes people less symptomatic, but equally as contagious, that's potentially helpful, but it could also help spread the virus in some ways. So there's going to be a lot of very detailed questions regulators will have to examine. After the regulators decide, okay, this is a safe and effective vaccine, we recommend it for use in this segment of the population, there is also just the huge task of scaling up production of a totally new vaccine. And that's going to take a while. It's just you can't snap your fingers and have 8 billion doses of a vaccine. You need to build this in a very careful way and do a lot of quality control. Basically, there are a lot of steps and this isn't going to change the world overnight. Pfizer has projected having about enough vaccine for 25 million people by the end of the year. So that's enough to get to some very high risk populations potentially, but it's obviously not going to be widely available right away. And even when there are more doses manufactured, there are still so many challenges to figure out. How do you widely distribute a vaccine that needs to be kept at super cold temperatures? If the vaccine requires two different shots given three weeks apart, how do you ensure that people get both in the right time frame? And what about all the other vaccines currently being developed? This portends well for other vaccines, partially because there are other vaccines that use a similar technology to this. So this one uses a particular approach that is also being used by another front runner, which we may soon also hear results from a company called Moderna. It also validates the whole approach they've been using for these vaccines all along. This is good news, but we can't oversell it. There's going to be a lot of continued work on vaccines. This isn't the end of the story. Carolyn Johnson covers science for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. 
As we think about the future of the country under a new president, it feels like a good time to learn more about who that person actually is. Our colleague Lillian Cunningham has a new episode out on her podcast, Presidential, and it's about President-elect Joe Biden. I thought that I knew all the major milestones and themes of Biden's life, but there were all kinds of little details and stories and insights in this episode that I'd never heard before. It was totally fascinating. Definitely worth your time to listen. You can find that new episode of the podcast Presidential on your podcast app, and we'll also link to it in our show notes and at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.